Well, I, I, uh, I did love the, if we're going to do, do another song again, I, I like Generous King. That was a great new, new song this morning. Um, grateful for that, that uh, song, and I thought it was very appropriate today on Mother's Day as we think about God's generosity. Here at uh, Bethany Community Church on Mother's Day, we use this as an occasion to celebrate uh, all the women that God has blessed our church with. And I've, I know that uh, Mother's Day can conjure up many different emotions for, for uh, women, depending upon what circumstance in life they're in. I, I, and I, I prayed for the women in our church this morning. I prayed for those of you who are very young, uh, the young ladies in our church that God is going to do great things in, uh, in the future, if, if the Lord tarries. And so we, I prayed for you that God would be encouraging you in your journey, that God would be preparing you for the things that he has in store for you, whatever that is. I, I prayed for young ladies who are maybe a little bit older, and it's kind of the beginning of their adulthood, and they're not quite sure what area of life God is directing them toward. I, I prayed for you that God would be with you in your unique challenges. I, I prayed for those of you who um, may be in some, some tough circumstances. Perhaps you have been in a relationship, been in a marriage, and, and that's not where you are today, and I pray that God's mercy would be upon you, that you would be encouraged this morning as you think about the unique opportunities God has for you to glorify Him and the circumstances He's placed you. I, I prayed for those of you who've lost children, who haven't had children, who've suffered miscarriages, who've suffered estrangement from children. I know that uh, there are women here who are each dealing with some unique opportunities, some unique struggles uh, based upon what God has led you to and, or brought you through. And so I'm just very mindful of that today, and I hope that you are able to sing along with that, that song we looked at earlier, that, that God is a generous king, and that God loves you, and, and that God has been generous with our church in providing us with you, based upon what God has, has taught you and how you've responded to him. And so I'm just very grateful to God for the, the women in our church. I'm especially grateful for my wife, and, and just what a a wonderful mother she is to, to our children and, and uh, grateful for God's a gift of her. And uh, this morning, if you would, uh, turn to Luke chapter 16. We're going to be continuing uh, through uh, the gospel of Luke. And as we come to Luke chapter 16, we're going to see some things about, some very interesting things about finances and material possessions. And it begins here in this first story. And I hope that you're encouraged as we, we look at God's word together. And of course, uh, moms and daughters and any women, I think Kent maybe mentioned this before I walked in, but there's a special gift for you as you exit. And if you want to, to share it with uh, the special person in your life, feel free. There's no, you don't feel like you have to eat the whole thing yourself, but, uh, but do, I actually do feel that way. Okay, well, you're hopefully you're in Luke 16 now, uh, verse 1. Please stand with me if you're able in honor of God's word as we as we look at uh, this, the parable of the dishonest manager here in the Gospel of Luke. And beginning in verse 1, Jesus said, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager." And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. 
So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you've not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You may be seated, may we be encouraged through God's word this morning, and let's, let's pray. And Father, this morning again, I, I just thank you for the women who are in our church. I thank you that you have given us the gift of, of godly women who love you and who are willing to use their spiritual gifts to serve their families, to serve uh, other individuals, able to, willing to serve singles, serve young children, serve older saints, serve in the workplace, serve in the, in the home, serve in schools. Lord, we just thank you for the incredible people that you've placed, women that you've placed in our church, and I pray your blessing upon them today. I pray that your your spirit would be upon them, that their spirits would be encouraged as they think about how you've gifted them for ministry, gifted them for service, and help us to encourage them. I thank you for my mother, and thank you for just the, the joy it is to be her son, and I pray that your, your blessing would be upon her today. I pray that you would uh, open a, your word to us now as we, we turn to this chapter in Luke. Help us to understand this this parable and to practice the, the type of use of our possessions that you call us to. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. This morning you're going to hear the story of, of two men, and both men were dishonest, deceitful, shrewd men. And I'm going to tell you the story of the first shrewd, deceitful, dishonest man, and then I'm going to encourage you uh, to be like him. I'm going to encourage you to imitate him in some way. And then we're going to look at another shrewd, deceitful, dishonest man, and then Jesus is going to tell us that story, and then Jesus is going to encourage us to be like him in some way. The first man's name that I'm going to tell you about this morning was Victor Lustig. Victor Lustig found himself outside a cafe in Paris in 1925, and Victor was reading a newspaper. And as he sat outside this cafe reading his newspaper in Paris in 1925, an article in the newspaper caught his attention. The article was about the Eiffel Tower, and it talked about how the the Eiffel Tower, which had been built for the Paris Exposition in 1889, the Eiffel Tower was in a a state of disarray. And not only were there not funds to fix the Eiffel Tower, 
the government didn't even have the funds to maintain the Eiffel Tower in its current state. And so the article was talking about whatever is the government going to do with this monstrosity that is the Eiffel Tower. And Victor, I didn't mention this, but Victor, a very important detail to note about him, is that uh, he was a con artist. And as he read this article about the Eiffel Tower, he, in his brilliantly shrewd, deceitful mind, had a light bulb moment. And he contacted a friend of his who was a forger, and he asked him to print up for him some some letters on government stationery. And in these letters, he sent them out to the various scrap dealers in Paris, and he signed them, you know, he signed himself the title of vice deputy of such and such, and he invited these scrap dealers to Paris's most prestigious hotel. And so these scrap dealers, about six of them came to this prestigious hotel, and Victor introduced himself as vice deputy so-and-so, and he told them that he had been commissioned by the government to sell the Eiffel Tower to scrap dealers. And the scrap dealers fell for it. Victor told them this story about how the government wasn't able to keep up the Eiffel Tower, so they decided to tear the whole thing down and let scrap metal dealers take care of it. And these guys were excited about the opportunity to get a great deal on the Eiffel Tower. In fact, one of them was so excited that he gave Victor not only the asking price for the Eiffel Tower, but a bribe on top of that. And by the time he realized the whole thing was a con, Victor was safely on a train headed toward Vienna with a suitcase full of money. In fact, Victor was never even charged with a crime because the scrap metal dealer was too embarrassed about looking like a fool. And so Victor got away with a perfect crime. And this morning, I would like to encourage you to act like Victor. I would like to encourage you to be like Victor. You say, well, you want me to swindle people out of money? No, 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 of course not, unless you're going to tithe on it. But what I would encourage you, <laughs> what I would encourage you to do is, is to, like Victor, be shrewd. There's, here's a couple things we can learn from Victor. You, like Victor understood the relative value of things. In other words, he was willing to spend a little bit of money up front for a big payoff later. He understood that it was worth spending some money to, to trick some people in order to, to get a big payoff later. What was the price of a dinner when you sell the Eiffel Tower, right? That's one thing we learned from Victor, the relative value of things, a small investment being worthwhile in order to gain a, a big return later. Something else I think we learned from Victor, from Victor we learn about the dep- depravity of the human heart. Victor understood that most people had decided to to serve money, and Victor exploited that, that the greed within people, as all good con artists do, exploited the greed within the human heart for his own purposes. Those are some things that we can learn from Victor, and we'd be wise to learn those lessons. Now, Jesus is going to tell us the story of the second shrewd, deceitful, dishonest man. And 
this parable that we're looking at is a very difficult parable to understand. The good news is after Jesus tells us the parable, he's going to explain it to us in verses 9 through 13. So he's going to tell us the story in verses 1 through 8 and then explain it to us in verses 9 through 13. And here's what I want you to think about as we look at this story that Jesus tells us together. Here's kind of the question I want you to think about. In this world, people have decided to serve money. And people have decided, most people, maybe not explicitly, but most people have decided to pursue material possessions and and material pleasures. Most people are materialists in our culture. And because they're materialists, most people know how to exploit material resources for their material ends. Worldly people know how to use worldly resources for worldly goals. They're incredibly gifted at it. The question that I want you to think about then is how should you and I, who have God as our master, view and use our material possessions? How should you and I, who have God as our master, view and use our material possessions? The world has decided, okay, I'm going to pursue material things, and I have these material things, and I'm going to use these material things to pursue material ends. That makes sense. That's logical. But here's one of the things that I struggle with. If, if that's what people who are materialists do, why are we doing the same thing? And for those of us who have said, our master is God, our purposes are eternal, how do we take these material things that we've been given and use them for eternal ends? You see the difference? That's the question that I want you to mull over as we turn to this story that Jesus tells, how should I, who, who have made God my master and in pursuing eternal ends, how should I view and use material possessions? We're going to come back to that, and Jesus is going to tell us at the end of this parable. Well, hopefully your Bibles are open to Luke 16. Remember in Luke 15, Jesus has been addressing the Pharisees and the scribes. We've spent five weeks in Luke chapter 15 In Luke chapter 16, verse 14, after this story we're looking at this morning, Jesus is going to turn his attention again to the Pharisees and scribes. But today, if you look at verse 1, we see that this parable is told to his disciples, not the Pharisees and scribes, but his disciples. This is a word that Jesus has for those who wish to emulate and follow after him. Luke 16, verse 1, he also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And so he introduces us to this rich man, and this rich man has a lot of resources. He's a very powerful individual. He has a lot of money, and he has a lot of land. And a rich man in this circumstance would have had the ability to farm some of his land, but he would have so many resources, so much land, that he couldn't take care of it all on his own. He would begin to allow other people to farm and to use some of his lands and produce crops. And as he allowed them to do that, they would pay him rents. And and this guy is so rich, he's so wealthy, that he has to hire an additional person to oversee all the people that he's allowing to use his lands. In fact, maybe he had several of these managers. And this manager is in charge of using this rich man's resources and, and overseeing the use of those resources. The manager in this story is the second guy that we're introduced to, and this guy is not a great person. 
he would have been a, a free man. Oftentimes, managers were slaves, but this guy is a, a free man. He has the ability to kind of control his own destiny so, so, uh, somewhat. And in this state, as a manager, he is in charge of overseeing the, the resources of the rich man and making sure that they're being well utilized. And in the story, charges are brought to the rich man against this manager. And the charges are that the manager is misusing or failing to uh, adequately use the rich man's resources. He's, he's wasting them. Those of you who are in school, you've been in uh, group projects, you've all had to do things as a group, and you know that one guy in the group who just kind of relies on everyone else to do things, or, or some of you are in the workplace, and, and when you do a kind of a group responsibility, you know that, that having the right person in charge can be a great thing, and you know how terrible it is when there's some Yahoo in charge of things that totally, is totally incompetent. Usually it's the guy you're working for, the gal you're working for. Uh, you know how it feels to work for a manager that, that doesn't understand rightly how to do things. And so the people who are underneath this manager realize that this manager isn't utilizing the master's resources appropriately. You see, a good manager, a good manager is able to take resources and, and see the task that needs to be done and kind of combine those resources and, and the tasks and is able to handle communication well and is able to, to make sure that things don't slip through the cracks and make sure that, that resources are utilized to their utmost. And a good manager, whenever times are good, a good manager makes a good return even better. And when times are bad, a, a good manager can minimize losses. This morning is, is Mother's Day, and as I think about a good manager, I, I first of all think about uh, my wife, Whitney. She is just an incredible person in, in terms of being able to, to look at a task that needs to be done or, or looking at the tasks that need to be done within our household and, and managing our household well and kind of overseeing the different things that need to be done. I'm, I'm reminded of, of uh, Proverbs 31, right? And we, we think about mothers as we think about Proverbs 31. And listen to what the, the writer in Proverbs 31 tells us. He says, an excellent wife, who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. The, the heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. And he talks about, and I was reading an article, in fact, uh, this, this week about um, women's brains and, and how, um, and maybe if you're a woman, you already know this, but how superior they are to, to men's brains. And the I never grasped that um, because I have a man brain. But, uh, you know, they're, they're incredibly complex and their, their ability to, to see layers of things and, and be able to multitask is, is just phenomenal uh, on average. And so here in uh, Proverbs 31, you're seeing this, this incredible woman and, and the ability that she has to, to, to see things and do things and, and manage finances. She, she seeks wool and flax. She works with willing hands. Uh, she's like the ship of merchants. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it's yet night and provides food for her household, portions for her maidens. She, she buy, considers a field. She says, okay, is this a good deal? And then she buys it. And so she's providing financially for her family. She's managing her family's resources. She makes sure that her merchandise is profitable. Um, she she's also uh, opens her hands to the poor, verse 20 tells us, reaches out her hands to the needy. Uh, she's, she's confident of the future. And it talks about all these amazing things that she's able to do. That's a good manager. God has blessed our church with, with women who are good managers, who can see resources and, and how to allocate those resources and manage them. 
this dude is not a good manager. He's incompetent. He's a pain to work with, and these slaves who are working for their master, the people who are underneath the manager, look at the way the manager is operating this, this, this household, and they go to the, out of loyalty, they go to the master and say, look, master, you got to get rid of this clown. He, he's squandering your possessions. And, and the master, this rich guy, is, has kind of turned his eye to these things. He's entrusted them to the manager and trusts him to take care of it, and the manager is doing a, a terrible job. And so Jesus tells us that the manager calls this, or the rich man calls this manager to, to him. Verse 2, he says, look, I, I, what's this I hear about you? What, what is it that I'm hearing? Are these reports true? I want you to turn into account, tell me how things are, and, and you can no longer be my manager. I want you to report to me, and let's figure out how bad this thing is, and, and, and then get out of here. You're through. You, you see what the manager says in reply? Nothing. <laughs> He's looking at the rich guy going, yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. <laughs> he turns away from the rich man and he walks away. And Jesus lets us know what he's saying to himself as he engages in this inner monologue with himself. He says, first of all, what shall I do? It's a great question. He says, here I am at point A with this job that I'm about to lose, and here's the future. And I'd like to get to point D where I'm eating something still. How do I get from here to there? In fact, if he had been a better manager, he would have asked this question earlier, but now he's all of a sudden a forward-thinking person. He says, how shall I get provided for since I'm losing my man? It's a foregone conclusion. I'm out of a job. What shall I do? Option A, he says, I, I could dig. I could engage in physical man, uh, manual labor. But, you know, I've got like, uh, I've got management hands. You know, I, I'm not really a strong digger. I don't have the strength to really get engaged in manual labor. That's out of the question. Uh, other, another option is to beg. And he objects to begging, not on moral grounds, like it's wrong to beg if you're an able-bodied person, but he says, you know, I'd be kind of embarrassed to do that. What shall I do? And then the text tells us, he says, I, I know what I shall do. He comes up with this, this, a, uh, this, this plan, this kind of flash of brilliance, and then he begins to call people to come see him, people that are indebted to his master. Verse Four, he tells, the, he tells us that he does this, he says, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. His master has made a, a little bit of a strategic error here. He's told him he's going to remove him from management, but not done it yet. And so the manager still has the authority as a manager to oversee his master's resources. And so he calls his debtors to see him, his master's debtors to see him one by one. The first guy, he comes and the manager asks him, how much do you owe? How much, what's your debt to my master? And this would have been a person that was using the master's land to produce olive, to, to grow olive trees. He says, well, I, I owe, uh, he says, I owe a hundred measures of oil. That would have been about uh, 
how much oil 150 olive trees produced in a year. It would have been about uh, two, uh, over three years worth of salary, 1,000 denarii. And the manager says, hey, do this. Sit down and very quickly write out 50. We'll call it even. Yeah, sounds great. Calls the next guy in. How much do you owe my master? He says, well, I owe him 100 measures of wheat. That would have been about how much 100 acres worth of wheat fields would have produced. It would have been worth a, a 8 to 10 years worth of salary for the average laborer. He says, okay, sit down, write out 80. And he does this again and again and again with his master's debtors. And people begin to catch on that they're indebted to this servant, this manager, for allowing them to lessen the amount that they owe the rich man. In this culture, we've talked before about this, this culture of, of, of tit for tat, of, of owing someone for something nice that they've done for them. And now he has ingratiated himself to all these people in the community. They now owe him one. And all of them would recognize that they have obligation toward him. In this culture of, of shame and honor, there would have been a, it would have been incumbent upon them to repay this servant, this manager, for what he's done for them. Now, we've talked before as we go through parables, oftentimes the point that Jesus wants us to grasp is the, the point of shock, the shocking part of the story. What comes next is the shocking part of the story, in my mind, and it's the part of the story that have, that's given commentators just, just headaches over the thousands of years since Jesus, the 2,000 years since Jesus told this story. The hard part of the story is what comes next. You see, whenever the master finds out what this servant has done, what his manager has done, you expect his reaction to not be a happy reaction. You would have expected the full fury of this rich man to come down upon this, this dishonest, deceitful manager. He has done things that were clearly at odds with what the rich man wanted done. And so you would think his fury would come down upon him. The uh, manager would suffer harm. He would expose him as a fraud in the community. And yet that is not what the rich man does. And perhaps in this culture he understood, the rich man understood that that because the manager was still legally his manager, there was nothing the, manager, the rich man could do to the manager. He had to, to acknowledge that he was still his representative. He, he couldn't get out of the, renewed, uh, the uh, renegotiated deal that the manager had done. He's, he's stuck. But instead of seething, and instead of getting angry, instead of stomping and storming around, saying, I'll get you later, he does something I, I find very surprising, and I think Jesus' audience would as well. Verse 8, it says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He doesn't commend him for cheating him. He doesn't commend him for the dis dishonesty itself, but he says, you know what? That was a pretty smart move. It was shrewd. And by extension, we're going to see in the following verses, Jesus commends this dishonest steward to us as well. He says, 
the next part of verse 8. For the sons of this world are, this is the important part, more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The sons of this world, the people of this age, of this generation, are, are, are more in tune intellectually with, with what needs to be done to pursue their ends than we are. The people in, in this world who've said, you know what, my, my, I'm going to serve the master money, I'm going to serve material possessions, they've got it going on. They know what to do in order to do what they say they want to do. We don't. And so Jesus is going to tell us in the following verses how to apply this parable of the dishonest manager, of this shrewd steward. He's going to tell us what we need to do in order to emulate. And what we're going to see is that you and I are to practice shrewd, God-centered stewardship. If we have come to the point in our lives, we've talked about this as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke before, if we've come to the point in our lives where we have repented of sin, we've said, look, this, this path of sin that I've been on, this path of pursuing uh, works-based righteousness, this, this path of pursuing sin is not a path I desire to be on any longer. I'm, I'm turning away from this, and I'm turning my, and placing my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. If we've come to that point in our lives, we've become a Christian, we've trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior by faith alone, if that's true, there should be a radical change in our lives. And that radical change includes how we view and use our material possessions. If money is our master, it affects how we use material things. If God is our master, it reflects, it should be reflected in how we use material things. And let me just share with you three thoughts based on what Jesus says here about our use of material possessions. Number one, number one, our use of material possessions reveals our investment strategy. Look at verse 9, what Jesus says. Our use of material possessions reveals our investment strategy. Verse 9, Jesus says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Uh, our, our use of material possessions is going to reveal something about our investment strategy, about what we believe, about how the best way to invest is. A person in the world has usually, hopefully, some sort of investment strategy, what they believe about the future and how they're allocating their resources based upon what they believe about the future. A couple of years ago, uh, the Bethany Fellowship of Churches, Bethany Baptist and Bethany Community and Living Hope are all trying to come up with this retirement plan. And uh, somehow, um, you know, because I'm a financial genius, um, I, I got tasked with kind of putting a plan together. And as I kind of researched this and kind of laid out some plans, I thought, boy, this, this is kind of a big responsibility. I was doing this, by the way, like at the end of 2008, beginning of 2009, okay? So the worst time in, my, in, in our financial lives, right? Um, and so, you know, nothing looked like a good investment. You know, one of my plans was big mattresses that we stick money underneath. I mean, it all looked bad, right? And so it was, it was kind of, it was kind of, 
kind of intimidating. I, I said, I, I don't know what the best investment strategy is, and, and uh, you know, only, only the Lord knows what's going to happen with these things, right? But there are several different investment avenues that a person can pursue based upon what they believe about the future and based upon what they believe the best way to respond to what's going to happen in the future, right? The same is true spiritually. And what we believe spiritually about the future affects how we use our material things. Jesus tells us here, look, uh, unrighteous wealth isn't going to last forever. There's, there's righteous things and then there's these things that aren't righteous like wealth. He's not saying wealth itself is inherently evil. He's just saying, look, wealth isn't righteous. It's, it's unrighteous. And what you need to do is use this temporary asset for eternal purposes. Use this temporary asset of, of money for eternal ends. There are amazing things that the world has done with money, right? I mean, none of us can deny that. The world knows how to use money. I was reading a, a book, I think I've mentioned it before, but the book is called um, The Ascent of Money. It's by Niall Ferguson. And in the book, he, he traces kind of the history of money. He tells a really interesting story at the beginning of the book. He's talking about the Inca Empire in South America and, and how when the conquistadors came in the 16th century, the, the Incas were very surprised by the Spaniards and their, their love for precious metals. The Spaniards, of course, terrorized the Inca Empire. They, they held the son of one of the Incan emperors uh, hostage, and they told the Incas that in order to get this, this hostage released, they had to fill this room uh, three times. They had to fill it once with gold and twice with silver. Well, the Incas responded, and they, they brought in these, these precious metals, and they brought in like 13,000 pounds of gold and 26,000 pounds of, of silver, and then the, the Spaniards uh, executed the sun anyway. Well, Ferguson writes that the Incas could not understand the insatiable lust for gold and silver that seemed to grip the Europeans. One of them said, even if all the snow in the Andes turned to gold, still they would not be satisfied. The Incas could not appreciate that for the conquistadors, silver was more than shiny, decorative metal. It could be made into money a unit of account, a store of value, portable power. Isn't that a great expression for money? Portable power. That's what this silver represented to the conquistadors. He goes on and he talks about the intangible character of money. He talks about how money isn't metal, it's trust inscribed. It doesn't seem to matter much where it's inscribed, on silver, on clay, on paper, on a liquid crystal display. Anything can serve as money, from the cowrie shells of the Maldives to the huge stone discs used on the Pacific islands of Yap. And now, it seems, in this electronic age, nothing can serve as money as well this portable power, these digits on a computer screen, the people of this world who love material things know how to use these digits and these silver objects and all these things in order to pursue power and material wealth. Our use of material possessions, for those of us who've claimed that God is our master, reflects what our investment strategy really is. If you're taking notes this morning, I, I just encourage you to write this down on, on your paper. Uh, write down, money is a tool. Money is a tool. Money is not inherently good or bad. Money is a tool that we all have access to. 
We all have access to this tool of money. And we have the ability to use this tool of money. Either We either have the ability to have this, wield this tool personally, or this tool of money can be wielded against us. My belief is that many of us are hampered, many of us are hampered in our service to God because we haven't used this tool of money rightly. I was reading a survey several years ago. It said that 17% of evangelical Christians claim to tithe. 17% claim to tithe. That is, give a, 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 a portion of their money, usually like 10%, to, to their church. Said, but really, in actuality, even though 17% make that claim, only 6% actually do. That's sad to me. And I don't think, I hope at least, that people aren't being intentionally dishonest. I just believe that many of us are so, uh, are such poor stewards of our resources that we don't even know what we're doing with our wealth that God has given us. 23%, the study said, gave nothing. And many of them are simply, in their minds, unable to give anything. Because, why? They haven't viewed their material possessions as an investment from God that they can utilize for eternal ends. That's the first thing I want you to think about. Uh, Secondly, look at what Jesus says in verses 10 through 12. The second thing we see is that uh, our use of material possessions reveals our ability to handle truly important things. Our use of material possessions reveals our ability to handle truly important things. Look at what Jesus says again in verse 10. He says, one who is faithful in, a very, in very little is also faithful in much, and, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If, if then you have not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Uh, the physical things of this world are going to be gone very, very quickly. And our use of these temporary material things is an indication of our ability to use and be mindful of the truly important things. This world, if you're going to hire someone to to be the president or the CEO of your company, you're not just going to hire some kid right out of college, right? You want to see someone who has the ability to to do things well, that has a, a proven track record, a past performance that can give some sort of indication of future success. Jesus is story here of this dishonest manager shows us a man who was faithful in little and therefore did not receive much from his master. There's a lot of things um, that God is, is going to do, I believe, if he tarries through our church in the coming years. I'm incredibly excited as, as I think about our church's ministries over the next 10 to 15 years. 20 years, 25. It's amazing just to think about, right? But there's a couple of things that, that burden me as I think about that as well. One is, we're not going to have an amazing ministry in five to ten years if we're not faithful with the things that we have today, right? And I'm also, let me just be transparent here, I'm also a little bit nervous about some of the the financial aspects 
of the things God is calling us to do. As most of you know, we're getting ready to prepare to, to build a, a building by God's grace. And I'm not so much worried about our ability to raise the funds for that. I, I think God is going to provide, and, and I, I know our hearts, and I think we're all excited about this, and we see this as not just a building, but as as first step in a, in a lot of ministries that we're going to be able to do. And so I think we're all excited about that, but here's what kind of concerns me. A thing that that um, that, that gives me pause as a pastor. My concern is that we undertake a very difficult thing financially without preparing our hearts spiritually first. In other words, statistically, I know that a lot of you are, are burdened with, with an amount of debt that isn't godly. And my fear is that we just kind of say, hey, let's, let's, let's give to this building, and let's engage in this building ministry, and then this next ministry that we're going to do out there that, that requires some funds, and everyone gives, and, and yet we haven't prepared our hearts spiritually to address the heart attitude that's revealed by love of material things. And so this, this building just becomes a, another thing to, to give money to. But we also have another opportunity here to instead of just letting this building be one other thing we do or the next ministries we have be, be one other thing we do or giving to the budget, be, say, you know what, this is a time to examine our hard attitudes toward material possessions. And to say, you know, what, what is it that my heart loves and how am I going to use the things that God has given to me and how am I going to change, not just am I giving toward a building, but, but change my whole outlook toward finances. Your use of material possessions reveals your ability to handle truly important things. And if right now, by your use of material possessions, you're showing, I mean, I just love this world, it shows that you're not spiritually prepared to handle truly important things that God would, ha would have you be involved in. You know, we began our church at the worst economic moment in our financial lives, unless you're around during the Great Depression. This has been the worst time ever for uh, the financial situation of our country d during your lifetime. So we, we planted the church 2008, at rock bottom 2000, early 2009, right? And yet, and yet, look how God has provided. I have no, I have no qualms about calling those who are poor to give sacrificially. I have no qualms about calling people who are in tight financial situations to give beyond their ability. 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for a severe test of affliction. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. It doesn't concern me to call us to, to give sacrificially. That's not my concern. I, I'm excited about that. My concern is that we never get to that point spiritually where out of, our, out of joy we're giving to God. And out of joy we're engaging in ministry for eternal purposes. You can give 90% of your money and yet still be so in love with material things it profits you nothing. How tragic would that be for our church, right? And yet, and yet we also have the opportunity, as we think about giving to missions, we think about giving to a building, as we think about giving to a church that's engaged in children's ministries and ministries of compassion, we have the ability uh, to give of a heart that loves the Lord and sees the joy of using these temporary material things for eternal purposes. Third thing I want us to see here, as we think about our use of material things, and 
how it reveals our ability, as we think about our use of material things. A third thing I want you to think about is this, our, our use of material possessions reveals our master. It reveals our master. Look at verse 13. And Jesus says, no servant, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Your true master is going to come out in the way that you handle, the way that you use, the way that you view your material possessions. I actually had the opportunity to preach uh, this passage of Scripture in 2008, and here's what I, I, I read in 2008 based upon a Money Central report. It's talking about our debt load. Money Central says about 43% of American families spend more than they earn each year. Average households carry some $8,000 in credit card debt. Personal bankruptcies have doubled in the past decade. And of course, since 2008, that has, that has increased. Consumers owe nearly $2 trillion. That's about $18,000 per household, a figure that doesn't even include mortgage debt. The number is up more than 41% from the 1.4 trillion consumers owed in 1998. Uh, now, as I kind of research these statistics, they're still bad, right? <laughs> Look at CNN, and CNN talked about how many American families are underwater. About one out of every five U.S. households owes more on their credit cards and on medical bills and student loans than they have in, in, in uh, liquid assets. Some families uh, are underwater in their mortgages. Uh, 25% of families have no savings or liquid assets in 2011. Uh, families that owe more than $50,000 uh, are, are, are up as, as well, like 15%. Uh, the, the, I'm sorry, the families that owe $30,000 in credit card debt has grown to 10%. Over and over, you just look at statistics and say, boy, we're, it just reveals that the American heart loves things. Most people have chosen the master money. And Jesus has some very hard words for us here. He says, you know what? You can't do both. You can't do both. And many of us try to straddle that American fence, right? Where on one side, we're, we're, we're American materialists, and the other side, we have God, and you know, we love God too. And, and, and God says, you know, you, you can't do it. <laughs> At some point, the, the rubber hits the road, and a decision has to be made. And when that decision has to be made about how you're going to use your resources, what you're going to do about debt, what you're going to do about giving, what you're going to do about, about how you, you open your home to others, and it, at that moment, it's going to reveal who the real master is. I introduced Victor Lustig to you at the beginning of our time this morning. And Victor was a shrewd, deceitful, dishonest man. He knew that most people had chosen the master of money, and he operated accordingly. Jesus introduced us to a second man, a shrewd, deceitful, dishonest man. He had chosen master as his money, and he operated accordingly. Jesus' words to us are this. Look, if, if dishonest people... If worldly people know how to use those physical resources to honor their master, how much more should the sons of light and daughters of light 
know how to use those things that God has given them to please their heavenly master. I encourage you, I encourage you to prepare yourself spiritually, to utilize those material possessions that God has given you to honor your heavenly father. Your use of material possessions is going to be very revealing. It's going to reveal what your investment strategy truly is. It's going to reveal what you find to be truly important and your ability to handle the truly important things, and it's going to reveal who your true master is. My prayer for our church, my prayer for you as individuals, is that God can give you the grace to serve him as your master and joy, have the joy of understanding the truly important things by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the things that you've given us, the material possessions you've given us. We thank you not because of them in themselves that they're our end, but we thank you that they're resources you've given us to enjoy and use to bring others joy and use to, to bring you glory and honor. We pray that we'd be faithful in our task of doing so. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.